Welcome to the Next in Time podcast, where we explore the fascinating depths of how people have the potential of impacting the world with the mission and vision of their project. Join us on this audio journey as we uncover the hidden gems of one's vision, delve into thought-provoking discussions of why they're pursuing it, and see how they're going to make an impact. If you're a curious person, this podcast is your go-to destination. Hey everyone, welcome to the Next in Time podcast. I'm your host, ST, and today our guest is Brian Clayton, who is an entrepreneur, author, and speaker, who is the co-founder and CEO of GreenPal, which is an online platform that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. He is looking to transform the lawn care industry, particularly the landscaping fields, and we would like to see how these things can happen coming in the next, com- the next couple of years. So uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, ST. Great to be here. Uh, we finally got to chat after, you know, many encounters, but we have not yet to have this interview. So I'm glad we're able to meet up and uh, talk about a lot of things. Awesome. Sounds great. So what is it like right now, you know, being, you know, being in the forefront of transforming the lawn care industry? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm CEO, co-founder of GreenPal, which is a mobile app that works like Instacart or DoorDash or Uber but for the landscaping business. So if you're a homeowner and need to get a lawn mowing service, you just download GreenPal, pop your address in, someone cut, don't come take care of it for you. Uh, GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. So it's kind of like this. It's like uh, <laughs> we're a decade in. We ended our first customer, our first year with uh, 20 customers, and now we have over 300,000. And so we're a decade in, but it still feels like day one. It's still like, it's, it's still the same thing we were solving 10 years ago is the same thing we're doing today. How do we make lawn mowing easier, faster, quicker, more convenient, uh, more reliable. And then for pros, how do we make them more money? How do we, how can we give them a platform where they can bolt on their business and make more money with less headache? And, uh, so it's, it's kind of weird in a way that it's like, Every level of the game has its own sets of challenges, so it's always changing, but it's always still the same vision, the same thing that we were set out to solve 10 years. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a dichotomy in a way. Right. And what is, so where are you currently based in? We're out of Nashville, Tennessee. Out of Nashville, Tennessee. I hear that it's a very big hub in terms of these new up and coming businesses, particularly in the uh, certain, like what you call the, uh, as they say, the blue collar in areas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you, the, Field software, I guess, is the is the uh, category that I guess you could classify our our platform in. There's a, I guess, the the the, the late adopters to technology and and running your business with your with a mobile app or or website is 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 like the home services industry. They're they're the last to to adopt these new new types of technologies. And so we're part of that. We're part of how do we bring a lot of this type of of business that's happening on pen and paper. And how do we bring it into the 21st century? And uh, and Nashville's a great place to do that. It's it's a little it's a little cheaper to operate than a than a Austin or a Silicon Valley or something like that. Yeah, it's so, it's like the polar opposite of Silicon Valley and Austin. Like you know, Nat- right. I've I've been in Nashville once and I think three times. I remember that area is very friendly to much more like what do you call it? as you mentioned feel soft feel software not. Yeah, not like the ones where you have to just, you know, you can just work in the nice work in the comfort of your home and then just build that nice app and then just be useful for it. Like, you know, have the smart watches, the smart 
devices. Right, right. Like, yeah, you, you got to get your hands dirty in, in, in this type of business. You you still have to talk to users. You still, you know, uh, the first the first uh, year uh, I spent the first year riding around in, in lawn mowing uh, crews, uh, you know, literally like over the shoulder um, watching how they interacted with the platform, watching how they use it, what they wished it would do. You know, how do they do this in analog and and how do they solve this problem without technology? And how can we build technology to help them solve it better? So, yeah, it's it's, it's the, even though you're in the technology business, you still have to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. So, anyway, what is your background like? When you, you know, tell me about where you come from. What is that drive? What was the idea that gave you the idea of starting, you know, Green Pal? Yeah, it's a great question. My first business was actually a lawn mowing company. I started mowing grass in high school as a way to make extra cash and. And I stuck with that little lawn mowing business all through high school, all through college. And then over like a 15 year period of time, I, I built it into a real company, uh, eventually over 150 employees and getting it over eight, eight figures a year in revenue. And then in 2013, that business was acquired by a national landscaping company. You wouldn't think it, but there's, there's like four or five big national landscaping companies that have thousands of employees. And, and one of them bought my business actually out of austin uh the company was at austin that bought it yeah it, i heard that it was one of the largest uh in the state of tennessee yeah the company was yeah the 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 business that i ended up building was one of the largest probably top three or four in the whole state um and and uh i kind of reached a plateau i guess you could say of of its growth i i next my, my next growth phase of that business was to move it uh, into other markets like Atlanta, Chattanooga, and Louisville, and things like that. I just didn't have the appetite to do that. I, I wanted to do something new. And so I, th I think to create the space for the next thing, I sold the company. That took two years to get done, but I got it got it acquired. And then, uh, and then took everything I learned from the blue-collar side in terms of how do you run a lawn mowing business, how do you get one scaled up, and, and applied it to, okay, this is how we're going to build the platform to help the smaller operators like I was 15 years ago. Like your family was also in the trades, right? Or is it just you that just got into long following business and everything? You know, my, my dad was in the military. Uh, and so I was, uh, I lived in like a, a military household. And so, and so I was forced into the lawn mowing business one day when he got tired of watching me play Nintendo all day. He said, Hey, get off your butt. I got, I got a gig for you. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. So yeah. I was like, I guess I was kind of like the, the first entrepreneur in the family. But it wasn't like I was born, naturally born, gifted an entrepreneur. My dad made me go mow my first first yard. Luckily, he did that or else my life would have been very different. Hey, this was in uh, Nashville, right? That's right. Yeah, in Nashville in, in, in the mid-90s. And so it's a great time to be starting a business in a great place. I got very lucky there. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, I feel like, there, I just feel like there was a lot of houses that just need lawn mowing services because that's uh, right. everyone, I believe, I'm not, I'm just like what I call an assumption that i have but you know a lot of people there they start i think more and more people back then they just started to you know gravitate away from the blue collar field and they're like i gotta people gotta get back into it soon or otherwise we don't have any nice looking lawns anytime soon. <laughs> exactly yeah uh, i was lucky in in many ways because nashville was booming then and still is and so i was part of a growing community and so i could kind of like ride the coattails and it was part of this transition you know, in the eighties, everybody mowed their own yard. Uh, and, and then, you know, you got into the nineties, people started, started hiring these things out, but it was still very much a luxury service. Now, fast forward today, 20 to 20 years later, uh, part of what we're empowering is people don't want to 
waste their time doing chores like that. They want to have somebody clean their house. They want to have somebody deliver their Chinese food. They want to have somebody pick them up and take them to the airport. They don't want to like look for a parking spot. They don't want to mow their own yard anymore. So we're part of this kind of shift of people not wanting to do these types of chores around the house. And, and so it's kind of, it's kind of like 20, 30 years in the making. Um, and maybe it's because people have more discretionary income than ever, but, but uh, we're kind of part of that. Right. And what was the, uh, so when you got into the lawn mowing business, um, what do you feel like that you've, what was the type of experience that you've gained just doing lawn mowing? Like what types of at, like skills, attributes, like were you per, like what, what were the things that kind of shaped your personality? Like just doing lawn mowing? Man, that's a great question. I think anybody who is wanting to start a business can cut their teeth in like a home services type of business. You don't have to run it forever like I did, but maybe just do a year or two um, running a lawn mowing business, a home cleaning business, a pressure washing business, a home painting business, you name it. Fair, they're easy to get into, low barriers to entry. Uh, you can hustle your way up to, you know, 100K a year in sales, 500K a year in sales. And and not easy, but it's doable. And you learn like 80% of everything there is to running a business. You learn bookkeeping, accounting, marketing, customer service, organization. If you have employee, you might get a helper. So then you learn like employee recruitment and, and management and leadership. And you learn all of these things. And the thing is, nobody teaches us how to run a small business. Nobody, not in high school, not in college. We're not taught anywhere. We're taught how to be workers, honestly. We're taught, we're taught how to be like like good, dependable workers, but we're not taught how to be business owners. And so for me, it was very much a, like indoctrination, a school of, okay, this is how you organize a, uh, a business efficiently. And this is how you, you measure a business down to the unit economics of what you're selling and how you know if you're making money or losing money. And I had to like, took me two years to figure that out. And then, and then when we got some employees, like this is, this is leadership. And it, and it, nobody taught me that, but you had, I did it wrong. And then you learned leadership is servitude and, and this is management. This is a little different than leadership, but this is what management is. You learn that. And man, I learned 80% of what it takes to, to run a business, uh, in the lawn care business. And so then when I started a tech business, I kind of was able to start on first base almost. It, it, I didn't have to like learn everything all, all over again. And what was it like, you know, when you what was, what was the difference between running a tech business versus a lawn care business? Yeah, it really caught me off guard. The first thing is, um, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to be a second time founder, but I really was just a first time founder all over again, because it was a lot of stuff that, that was new, a lot of things that didn't apply. And the, and the one thing that caught me off guard was when you're starting a tech business, most of the time you're inventing something brand new from scratch that does not exist in the world. You, you see the world a little bit different than it is today. And you see how your invention, your product that you're building can help solve that problem, can help make it a little easier. And, and nobody knows about it. Nobody knows to use it. Nobody knows how it works. And so you have to overcome all these things. That's a hundred times harder than just starting a construction company or starting a restaurant, starting a, like a home cleaning service. Like it's, 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 there's, there's known, there's known business plans and, and strategies for those types of businesses. So yeah, that was like the failure rate is nine, 95%. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. But you just managed to make it into the 5% of those companies, those tech stars, like tech, well, as they call it tech stars, but now grown into like at least a decent sized company into, you just kind of had, it, it was like a very, uh, meticulous pattern of how you had to do it to make yourself successful. 
Yeah, it, it, it's uh, like the vision never changed, but the way we wanted to get where we were going changed all the time. Like the like the path meanders, and it, and it's a very iterative kind of trial and error uh, process. And it almost really was kind of like a video game. It was just one level at a time. We really wanted to just, you know, how do we get 100 customers? Let's not worry about anything until we get 100 customers using our app to, to get lawn mowing. And that took two years. And then after we got 100 and we figured out how to keep them, then we're like, okay, now we got to get 1,000. How are we going to do that? And that took another two years, but it began to compound. But it was very much like one failure to the next and just not giving up. And, and like a video game, especially like one in the, back in the 80s, is, it was like, I don't know if you're, you're too young to remember this, but back then, like, like if, you, if you died in the game, it was like game over, press start to continue. <laughs> it was like, like that was the screen that yeah, you were yeah, the old The old Nintendo games that you right. mentioned earlier. <laughs> exactly. Game over, you're done, you're dead. Press start to continue is what the screen said. And and so it, like that's how it was. It was like, okay, that didn't work. Now press start to continue. Let's keep going. Let's figure out a, a way to make this work. And that's how the first two or three years were, man. It was it was tough. Yeah. So what did you use to be able to acquire those first thousand users for GreenPal? And how has yeah. your acquisition user acquisition strategy evolved since then? Yeah, the first uh, the first hundred, maybe even five hundred uh, customers came from flyers. We just we didn't have any user acquisition strategy. We spent two years building an app, uh, wasted a year of that uh, trying to outsource it, and that was a that was a failure. We taught ourselves how to code, and then and then like spent another year building building the thing. And wait, did you build the application, or did someone else do it? We well, the first thing we did was we 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 paid a shop to build it, and that was like a failure. Like like they the, the specs. We might have given them the wrong uh, the, the the wrong roadmap, but like what we ended up with was not workable. It was didn't have the feature set we needed, and it was clunky and buggy, and so that thing was dead on arrival. And we had to scrap it, and we had to like start all over again with just a website. And so at least we got a website up. That took us like nine months uh, while we were learning how to code along the way. And then as time went on, we we were able to build a team around us to rebuild the apps and and build and get a mobile app at least in the app store and then in Android and in Android, et cetera. So it took a while. Um, but you know, all along the while of rebuilding the website and then layering on the apps and so on, we were passing out flyers. That was the only way we could get people to like become aware of we had this this service that, that could help make their life a little simpler. We must have passed out half a million flyers in the course of a couple of years. And that's uh, and that's what we had to do at that stage of the game. But as as time went on, and we got a couple of people using it, we uh, we would meet with them. We would meet with them at Starbucks. We would meet with them at their kitchen table, and and like ask them, okay, well, what did you like about the app? What what didn't you like? What do you wish it would do differently, and so on. And we would always ask them, how do you normally find a lawn mowing service? You know, if you didn't use this and. They would say, well, you know, I'd ask around for recommendations and so on. But out of desperation, I would go to Google and type lawn mowing near me. We kept hearing that over and over again. We thought, well, maybe we just try to compete in Google organic search. And we were quickly con confronted with the reality of like, that's really hard. It's a lot harder than you think it is. And a lot harder than I thought it was. And, and, yeah. uh, and so then we, we, we made a little, little plan to start trying to develop some content and get it to rank and. And uh, we started, we didn't, we couldn't ever like rank for lawn care Nashville in the early days because that was really competitive, but we could rank for lawn care uh, Smyrna, lawn care Hermitage, lawn care Bellevue. These are little towns around Nashville. And, and yeah, around so, that. I've definitely been to the Hermitage for sure. There you go. Yeah. So we built it from the ground up that way. And as time went on, we, we, 
got some momentum and the little wind started to compound. And now that's how we get over 60% of the people that use the, the platform is through just, or, you know, organic search. And so now your business has gone beyond, let's say, just your first thousand users. Now you have like 200,000 active users and you've been featured in publications like Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. That's right. Yeah. And, and uh, closing in on 300,000 people actually using it. So it's, it, it, it very much is beginning to compound, like the numbers are starting to, to, to grow uh, like at a compounding rate. And in an early days, you know, it was like a hundred and then 500 and then a thousand. And like, that's the hardest part is knowing that these small things are still small, but if you can get, get that compounding to take place, that's when it starts to pick up some steam. And, and that's what we always had to remind ourselves of. Like we, 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 we knew like in years one, two, and three, that if those numbers, we just put a zero on the end of them, that, that eventually we would have a real business. And now here we are 10 years in, we, we actually have a real business now. And so what role has data played in this, in this growth of GreenPal? Like, let's say because you've gotten so many different long, like lawn care businesses, you got individuals who want to mow their lawn, who want to get access to their using their app. And, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned before, this was like the Uber of lawn care services. So how did you manage to, you know, utilize data to be able to get that growth? Yeah, it, it, data is, is uh, it's like people want to think data and they're like, well, I don't have, you know, I've got 20 customers. I don't have any data, uh, you know, and, and, and the thing is like data can just be five conversations with five customers. Like it's, it, it can be qualitative data and it's, and you have to use that in the early days. And so for us, data was important in the first few years because we would talk to every single customer that would use the platform and we would try to get qualitative data out of them, especially the ones that quit using it. And we would put that in a spreadsheet and try to develop like patterns and commonalities of what was upsetting people and what was delighting people. So we could figure out where to like focus what little bit of firepower we had on, on solving problems. So in the early days, we used qualitative data in, in terms of conversations with customers and what they're telling us to, to make decisions and figure out where to focus. And then as time went on, we started getting a little bit, a little bit scale so we could figure out, okay, well, you know, uh, you, you, you name it. Why, why, why is it that 70% of the time, uh, somebody comes to the platform, uses it one time, but then never comes back and uses it again. And, and why is that? Let's, let's, let's look at that. Let's start doing some experiments around that. And, and figure out how we can take that 70% and, and move it down to 50. At least let's hold on to 50% of the people. And so we started experimenting we, and, and, and talking to customers. And what we realized was the problem was is that they didn't know. They didn't know that they were supposed to uh, set up services for the whole season. And so they would, they, would, uh, they would let it, like they would use it one time and then they would like, let their grass grow four feet tall. And then they would never like use it again. They would call somebody else for the second time. So. We created a system on the onboarding. It's like, hey, do you want one service weekly, every two weeks? And then, and then we they would select that, and then they would be opted in for that cadence um, as as time went on. And like that took us from that from seventy percent down to like thirty percent. So that was like like uh, like an example of using quantitative data in year three that enabled us to to make the business run smoother and delight more customers because that's what they wanted anyway. And now you know today we have hundreds of thousands of people coming in and out of the platform work where, you know, we're always running at least 10 or 20 experiments on how we make that flywheel run faster and how we, we figure out where we're losing people and, and, and figure out how to, how to solve more problems for more people. 
And Green Pal, like the way if you want to sign up for Green Pal, what is the process like? Let's say as a if I'm like this new lawn care provider who wants to help out my neighborhood. So how does how do you go through the process in terms of signing up and you know utilizing the application and you know doing all this and getting all the getting the access to the houses I want to help out with? Yeah, great question. So if you're a consumer, it's real easy. You just pop your address in and your email, and you'll get four or five quotes back in about a minute from qualified lawn care services nearby you. If you're a pro, it's a little different. Still easy, but but uh, a little bit more involved. So the first thing you got to do, uh, you have to verify your identity. You have to you have to uh, verify that you have the proper equipment and you have to upload a little bit of information about your business. And then we, re we review that. We look at that and we're like, okay, yeah, the check, check, check. Okay, let's let them on. Or sometimes, a lot of times we have a waiting list in most markets now. Uh, is, this like, is this waiting list or is this chat this background check automated or someone in the company does that for you? Like they just scan through the person's background and then make their decision. Yeah, we 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 look it over. We we look at pictures of their equipment. We look at testimonies from their past customers. We look at uh, the their driver's license, things like that. So we do a, a quick manual check. But, but I was going to ask because. Yeah, there's like 200,000 users, right? There might be, let's say, about 50,000 of those are, or 100,000 of those are people who want to do lawn care services. Like, how do you manage to make time, manage to like efficiently scan all these different people that sign up for the platform? That's yeah, in the, in the early days, you know, it wasn't that hard because there was only like two a day. <laughs> but now we've grown like, to, you, guess, you guess the number pretty good. It's 32,000 contractors use it to run their lawn mowing business. And so now it's around 100, 100 new pros a day sign up. And for the ones that we don't have a waiting list, we put through this review process. For the ones that, that do have a waiting list, they're, they're in a queue. And so we have a team that looks over all this stuff. You know, it used to be me and my co-founder, but as time went on, we developed a, a standard operating procedure. It's like, okay, check this, check this, check this, and then give them the green light or, or no. Um, and a lot of times, one of the, you know, because trust and safety is a big part of the value proposition we bring to the consumer is like we we screen out a lot of these fly by night operators that aren't taking the business seriously or 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 heaven forbid have bad intentions like to commit fraud. And so we have to screen them out. And that's a big part of what we do. And and it took us like five years to figure out how to keep the repeat offenders out because somebody, you know, would come in and like you know, do a half-assed job for a consumer or, or not do a, not do the job at all and try to scam them. And, and it's our job to screen them out, like deplatform them and then make sure they never sign up again. So we've got about a dozen different ways we look for that. And, and so that's gotten to be pretty impressive, but the manual piece of it is actually pretty simple. And, and we've got a team that handles that. And then as time goes on, we then score them rigorously, you know, like how often do they show up on the day they're supposed to, how often do they get booked for second, third, and fourth mowings, and so on? And so that we promote the good ones and demote the bad ones, and 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 expel the ones that needed to be expelled. Like, how many cases have you had where you had to deal with very unruly types of lawn care providers? Let's say they they sign up and then they use the platform, as you mentioned, to let's say uh, you know let's say scam their fellow customers. And then, you know, it takes all, I mean, when you do all this investigation, looking at the user, looking at like what they're back, what they just did, looking at the crime, 
Yeah, it just it takes a lot of work. So I mean, especially even for your team, how do they even manage to handle those kinds of situations? Yeah, for us, look, we're we're lucky in the sense that the stakes are pretty low. We're talking about, you know, 30, 40, 50 dollar transactions. So it's it's not like they can scam somebody for a thousand bucks, but it has happened. It doesn't happen often. Like in the early days, uh, when our system sucked and it was they were porous, it would happen more. Like because because every marketplace you build is like a it's like a bathtub drain for for bottom feeders. And so you have to like you have to build in the systems to 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 be like Barry Bonds against a uh, a softball pitcher, like just just knocking them out of the park. And so like we it took us three or four years to to build those. But as time has gone on, it doesn't happen very often anymore just because we we screen a lot of them out that way. Uh, so it's not like something that that takes up a lot of our time, maybe one or two a year. Uh, at that end now, you know, we're doing hundreds of thousands of transactions. We've actually, I mean, we've, we've done three of over 3 million, uh, transactions in the last few years. And, and I mean, I can count on the top of my head less than on one hand, the, the number of, of bad ex- situations where we had to get involved and, and, uh, but we've never had a situation where it's like blowing up into some big lawsuit or something like that. And so where, where do you see this going in the next couple of years? Yeah, it's more of what we're really good at, which is we're the best solution for a basic lawn mowing service. We're we're not anything else other than that. Like if you need if you need uh if you need if you need a private gardener, we're not we're not the solution for that. If you need somebody uh to come uh clean your pool, green that's not green pal. Green pal is the easiest way to get a lawn mowing service to come mow your grass, even if it's five feet tall. And and so <laughs> it's like we're a drop in the bucket compared to for how much uh, mowing is actually getting done. Uh, it's a $99 billion industry. You wouldn't think it's that big. I know I didn't, but, uh, but it is. And so we're like, we're over $30 million a year is what we're doing now. We want to get to a hundred million and we want to get to a million users, a million users using it. Like, are you looking, are you looking to expand beyond the, uh, beyond Tennessee or is like you, have, you already have done that before? Oh yeah, no, totally. Uh, yeah. After about year three, we, we developed a little, playbook on expanding into other cities and now we're in every major city in the united states so like 300 300 cities so if you live in a place where there's over twenty thousand people you can use green pal to get a lawn mowing service cool and what is the uh i was gonna ask i'm trying to remember that last question i wanted to ask um like how do you do you ever see yourself doing like going beyond lawn care providers like or appealing like, to lawn care providers? Let's say if you want to do like other areas of like of maintenance for the house, let's say construction or maybe uh, fixing a leaky faucet or even uh, let's say do some clean. Let's say have inside cleaning so that, you know, people can't clean the house a hundred like every single day. So do you ever have plans on doing those kinds of areas or do you have decided to stick with lawn care only? It's possible, never say never, but I don't see it in the in the nearby future because there's just so much white space in this one vertical for us. One thing we did learn um, about two years ago, uh, you know, our, our business is seasonal, so we we thought about ways to try to help with that, and we we got into snow plowing, and we realized really quickly that it's a whole nother business. It's it's a whole nother system. It's a whole nother set of processes. It's a whole nother workflow, and it was like really really hard. And it took a lot of our bandwidth to build that and then make consumers aware that we offered it and then figure out how to like create one seamless dashboard where you can switch between the two and know you're managing your snow plowing service and know you're managing your lawn mowing service and so on. And it was just 
really, really challenging. And I'm glad we did it. But if I had known everything I know today, we wouldn't have done it because it was just like, it came at the expense of our core competency, which is lawn mowing. And so I feel like until we reach total saturation in every metro in the United and the continental, like in like all of North America, Canada as well, um, we'll keep doing what we're good at and, and probably not mess with anything else because, because every business has a million different problems. All of these different verticals need a separate tool suite, uh, tool set, need a separate suite of services, need a separate almost platform. And there's a lot of horizontal marketplaces already. There's Angie's List, Home Advisor, Thumbtack. And those are great for like getting names and numbers. But that end-to-end -end experience, push a button, get quotes, they come out and do it, then they set it up, it just happens, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like we're the only solution that does that end-to-end, -end, and we're just going to focus on making that better and better. And so one final question before we wrap up this conversation, um, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are struggling to raise capital for their business? Um, especially I've, you know, I've read, I've learned about the fact like in our previous meeting that you were, you're all self-funded and you're only relying upon revenues and not no like not outside funding. So what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who really want to consider bootstrapping their business compared to, let's say, you know, because the the common trope of startups is like we got you always have to get outside funding from VCs, angel investors, or other other sources. So, what, what advice would you give to those kinds of entrepreneurs? You know, that's a great question. We we like to your point. We did self fund the business, and I'm I'm very very fortunate that we did because as we were growing in like 2013, 14, 15, 16, there was a, a avalanche of venture capital getting thrown at. Uh, ideas like ours, Uber for home cleaning, Uber for valet parking, Uber for painting, you name it. And, uh, and nine out of 10 of them, maybe more are, are now out of business. Like the, 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 the venture capital almost like caused their failure. If they had, if they had just gone slow and low and built a solid business on fundamentals, that's kind of, uh, that's not really congruent with what VCs are looking for, and then, you know, which is why it's hard to do, um, they, they'd still be around. And like those founders would still like have a dream. They would still have a, a company. They would still have a, a mission. Uh, but now who knows where, where they ended up because they, you know, the, the venture capital was almost like putting rocket fuel in a Toyota Camry. It just exploded. And so I think for most founders taking on venture capital is a bad bet. And unless you've been around the block and you've done it two or three times, and, you know, maybe you've built and sold a couple of eight-figure businesses in tech, and and this time you know how to move quicker. Um, but I think it, I think it, it, it that funding the business off of its own revenues, that revenue is a better form of financing than taking on rocket fuel. Um, but if you do go down that path, just know what you're signing up for. You are very much signing up for a chain reaction of events that is get rich or die trying. And you, you, you know, you're going to go, what you either going to like crash and burn or, or you're going to have a success and the chances of success are, are slim. Um, and you know, for me, it worked out, but I'm not anti VC, but I, I would, I would just encourage founders to like figure out ways to fund the business off of its own revenues, because that keeps you focused on your customer, gives you very clear thinking on what's important and, uh, maybe get a win under your belt, a, a single or a double, and then do, do VC on the second or third one. Yeah, five as they say, five only nine like ninety five percent of startups fail. So, 
that's kind of why look, you have to always tread carefully to be in that 5%. Look at Y Combinator. The, these are the, the NFL of the NFL of startups. I mean, they have a hell of a system, hell of a, hell of a process for, for getting the brightest founders and the best ideas. And I mean, they're behind the, they're, you know, they're responsible for the names of like Airbnb and Stripe and, and Instacart and all of these big names that we all use and household names. And maybe there's 50 or a hundred of those names. I don't know, 150 maybe, but they've funded 5,000 companies. So, so it's like, there's 150 that matter out of 5,000. And I don't, I suck at math. I don't know what the, what those odds are, but they're not very good. And that's the best of the best of the best. Like why those are the best numbers, like in terms of, 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 uh, of, of, of how these things play out. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's very much like trying to make it in the, I would say your odds of creating a venture backed super scale billion dollar unicorn are about as good as moving to LA and trying to become a big actor or coming to Nashville where I live and trying to be the, uh, a, a music, uh, country music Just, star. Yeah, country music star. Yeah, huh? yeah, exactly. It's about the same. It's about the same odds. And yeah, so just know, know what you're signing up for. All right, cool, uh, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on the Next in Time podcast, and we really look forward to seeing how Green Pal can grow like crazy without any sort of outside funding. Awesome, St. I appreciate it, man. I'll come back on when we get to 100 million. <laughs> Definitely. We'll always have our uh, yearly uh, six, like who became successful stories. Sounds great. I look forward to coming back. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Next in Time podcast. We hope you enjoyed diving into the intriguing vision of our guest today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media to stay updated on future episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, stay curious and keep exploring.